Welcome back, everybody. This is Steve Yamada from Around with Stephen Cole. We're back here at 12 Mile Limit for our pre-recorded weekly podcast. Here's my co-host. Hi, everybody. I'm T. Cole Newton. We're coming at you this week with a couple of guests from MACCNO. That's the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans. We have their executive director, Ethan, and their employee whose job is somewhat more nebulous, Hannah Krieger-Benson. Why don't you guys say hi? Hello. Hey, how y'all doing? All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, you guys first came on my radar a few months ago because we were talking about Mayor Landrieu's security plan, and I was sort of organizing bar owners against it. There were a few recommend there were some recommendations that I thought made sense, but there were a lot that seemed like really onerous and like they would be very burdensome for bar owners. And I discovered in that process, somebody recommended that I get in touch with you guys because you were also organizing against that same security ban. And we can talk a little bit more about the details of that later. Um, but I just want to talk about, we'd, we'd like to talk about people's sort of professional history and personal trajectory. So I want to talk a little bit about how you guys uh, came to the city of New Orleans, what you were doing before, what you're doing now. And then we can talk a little bit about MACCNO and the work that you guys do there. Full life history for the most part. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Where were your parents born? <laughs> no, we're not, we're not going that deep. But, uh, Annie, you want to take us off? How, how long have you lived in here in the city? And, and what, do you, what do you do with your days? <laughs> well, I moved to New Orleans uh, for a year, quote unquote. Uh, that was 2007. So, whoops. Uh, <laughs> so. I, I, I've joked with people that be careful when you fly to New Orleans, because if you miss your flight home, you'll probably wind up here for at least five years. Right? <laughs> Where did time go? <laughs> right, right, right. And here we still are. So yeah, no, I came down here, um, it was right after undergrad, I came to build houses, it was not long after the storm, did house construction in the nonprofit world for three years, which was lots of fun. And were you with the uh, St. Bernard Project? Who was your... Habitat. Habitat. Yeah. Okay, that's right. That's actually how we met each other first, wasn't it? I think it is. That's right. Yep. I, was, I was in the AmeriCorps world with City Year, but mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a tight circle it around was the same time. Very small little, little world. Um, so yeah, so I came down here. That was right after undergrad. I had uh, come here a few months before graduation on tour with a music group, and people here about a year and a half after the storm said, oh, we need you here. People in New York said, ha good luck finding a job where I was about to graduate. <laughs> so I went back up north finished the last couple months of uh, my last year of college and then moved without knowing anybody. Um, and then I'm still here. So I feel like the, the like two years after the storm, thereabouts, that window, was the only time that carpetbaggers were really embraced <laughs> with open arms in New Orleans. Like People talk about it, it's like, oh, it's such a hostile city to outsiders. Or like, don't tell us how to live our lives down here. But there was a brief window right after the storm, not before, not after, where everyone who moved to New Orleans was like, thank you for just being here at all. Like, it just occupying space in New Orleans and having a job and having a home and paying taxes and buying stuff was just, like, the hero's journey. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, you know... As, after I was here for a little while, I realized the the complexity of the politics of coming here as an outsider and you know being being careful around that, and realizing how sort of extraordinary it was that at that at that time you know like you said when I was first here on that visit it was about a year and a half after and it really was just the sense of like come here and and there was so much to do and so much work to be done and leaving aside the you know the nuances of sort of what I think about nonprofit construction and all that kind of stuff you know there's, there's a lot of there's a lot there but. It, uh, once I was here, I wanted to re- sort of really stay and, and, you know, explore it and figure out the life that I wanted to have here. Well, cool. So. How about you, Ethan? What's your, how'd you wind up here and sure. when? Sure. So I came here in 2009. Um, I actually came here for grad school to study at UNO um, in the, um, the MERP program, um, Urban and Regional Planning. I came here directly after doing a stint in the Peace Corps. Um, so... I realized as my Peace Corps time was closing out that I needed to do something else, and I felt like it was a good time to go back to school, and so I started to apply to grad programs, and I was looking specifically, at, I was in Peace Corps in Jamaica, and I was looking specifically in for places that would be a good place to go, so I didn't feel like I was heading back directly to the States. I grew up in Wisconsin, and I wanted some other place to fig- like where I had to come in and really figure things out and, and not have this sort of weird reverse culture shock it would be something totally different and new orleans was that place also they had a peace corps fellowship program at uno which i did not get but i came here anyway (laughs) (laughs) um and so uh, you know my background is really in community development work in youth work and 
you know, I kept thinking of like taking how do I take steps back and try to work on systemic problems. So it was urban and regional planning, and it certainly you know seemed like the right place. And so that I finished that in in 2010, and it is now 2017, and I'm still here. Yeah, Gathering go. all these personal histories right now kind of makes me feel like a completely like horrible person. <laughs> it's like Peace Corps, Habitat for Humanity, AmeriCorps, Steve Yamada, nothing. nothing. Absolutely not. Just scraping by to survive. I've been meaning to tell you, Steve, you're a terrible person. <laughs> I have, uh, That's actually I, the real purpose of our scumbag intervention right now. <laughs> I'm okay with it, guys. I've, I've come to peace with that. You know, just... Uh, <laughs> Um, it's funny that you mention New Orleans as a place where you could there wouldn't be as much culture shock moving back to the United States as the rest of the United States, which coming from Jamaica, right. people t- sort of semi-jokingly, but not really, describe New Orleans as the northernmost Caribbean port city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty no, accurate. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the few places where, where Haiti is actually, sorry, where, other than Haiti, where voodoo is legitimately practiced as a religion. It's more of a, it's more of a, tourist trick now I think but there are still practitioners of voodoo in a very real sense and that's you know that's nowhere outside of the Caribbean where that's the case um, we are sort of like especially after after Katrina and some of the other uh, the, the decades of economic neglect that came mm-hmm. before and after Katrina that made us feel more or less like the neglected sort of pseudo stepchild of the rest of the United States right. and, the, and the, the, the way the houses are colored the palm trees the the sort of interesting relationship with death that that the Gulf Coast. No, I'm serious. I mean, that the the it has to do with sort of the mosquito line. That their communicable diseases here are follow more patterns that are closer to the tropical world than they do to the uh, to sort of the, the the rest of the northern hemisphere. But that it's it it is like that. It is more of a Caribbean city, but it's also technically a part of the United States right. still. So that's also I've heard people joke about. Uh, the, specifically, the UNO's urban planning program is like how do, what New Orleans being such a legendarily poorly organized city that is the accidental city, as it were. It was like why do people study urban? But the uh, the counter argument is like, well, it's a great test case for all of the things that you can do to fix it because mm-hmm. it has all of the problems. That's kind and, of the modern example at this point too, right? It's just like, oh, charter schools, will those work out? Let's try it in New Orleans first, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I well, think, yeah, I think I think there's a flip side of that too as well, which is it's the laboratory. It becomes people look at it as the laboratory, which then created some <laughs> issues. Maybe sure. charter schools being one, um, but I think. Um, also, New Orleans has unique problems, right? And because we work with culture, you know, the idea around, uh, you know, planning and culture is something that it, it takes its own sort of unique spin in New Orleans when we have second lines, when we have sort of, you know, spontaneous things happening and we have, um, you know, neighborhood-based cultural traditions that are very rooted in, in place, which doesn't happen as much also. And also we have specific things like you can take your drink on the street, which is, <laughs> creates its own set of, of issues as well. Um, so... Well, it's really a fascinating place to, to kind of look at that kind of stuff. And I was going to say also, I know New Orleans exceptionalism as a concept gets taken too far sometimes. And uh, I think there was actually like a, a one-day conference on that last year, which was pretty interesting. Um, because it, it can, it can get taken way too far and people get way too sort of wrapped up in the New Orleans-ness of New Orleans. However, looking at the ways that it is different from other American cities, you know, even starting with sort of the, the physical landscape you know it's it's warm enough that inside and outside spaces become fluid unlike you know in up north wisconsin. in wisconsin for, <laughs> just for example um, is that where or, you're from yeah no, no that's, that's where i'm from oh, that's where I'm, from. I'm originally from from boston which has the same thing you know if you're indoors you're indoors if you're outside you're maybe not happy about it um, <laughs> in the winter at least um, i actually i actually love the winter but uh, but here again you know outside and inside spaces are really fluid and that has shaped the way the culture is um you know, for good and for bad. And, you know, even going more basic than that, the city is flat. The city is surrounded by water. And all these things, you know, make sound carry very differently. So there's, there's a lot there in terms of the, the history of the way music and culture interacts with the physical city, which, you know, are important to talk about, um, while also, you know, sort of acknowledging that New Orleans exceptionalism can be a little bit, too, you know, it, it can get too much sometimes. Right on. Well. Cool. Let's uh, go ahead and circle back as well. For anybody who's unfamiliar with your organization as well, let's just uh, talk a little bit about uh, what is the work that you guys concentrate on and some of the uh, you know issues that you're currently addressing. Sure. Hannah, do you want to kick off the origin story and then we'll go from there? <laughs> it's like well. a Marvel movie. <laughs> I was bitten by a radioactive trombone player. <laughs> Weirdly enough, yes. Uh, <laughs> 
So, in September of 2012, um, a meeting was called, a sort of community gathering um, was called by Kermit Ruffins, who is one of our obvious, you know, our, our wonderful local um, luminary musicians. So he wanted people to come together and talk about um, a couple of issues in the cultural world that were happening right then in the summer of, uh, of 2012. And, and people came to his the bar that he used to own on uh, on, Trim- on Basin. Basin Street, the Treme Speakeasy, that's the one. Um, a couple of music venues had been told that they could not have music mm-hmm. uh, because their permitting was not in order. Either it had never been sorted uh, because of where they had opened, or at least in one case, I believe it had, it had lapsed after the storm and you know had not been uh, been been properly sorted out seven years later. So people were just furious. There was this sense of there's this crackdown on culture. There's this sense of sort of we're under attack. And uh, that initial meeting was a room full of yelling. It was just an <laughs> amazing amount of yelling. Was it more one-sided yelling or was it both sides were in the room at the same time? Well, the thing about these kinds of issues is there's sometimes sort of two sides per se. And there's sometimes really not. Sometimes it's just sort of everyone with their own opinion. And in this case, it's kind of what it was. There's a lot mm-hmm. of different stakeholders and interests. Um, but, you know, speaking of sort of sides of it, what became clear during the course of the meeting was that there was a lot of potential energy in the room. There's a lot of overlap and alignment and that if this group of people could come together more regularly, some things could actually move. Cool. So the next Wednesday at noon, a bunch of people came back. Not quite as many as the first week. A little less yelling. A little bit less yelling. Um, at that point, I stood up to say, hello, I'm a grad student I'm in musicology at Tulane. I'm writing my master's thesis on um, the distribution of music venues in the city and the legal and power systems that that make that you know why are mm-hmm. music why is is music legally played in, in certain patterns in certain places and then not in other whole chunks of the city uh, I said you know hello this is you know my name is my face I'm going to be emailing everybody in this room I hope for interviews and someone in the back of the room said do you want to leave these meetings <laughs> and I sort of blinked at them um, and basically agreed to do it, um, along with another woman who had spoken up a few minutes before and been extremely um, calm and reasonable and rational. And that was uh, Kyoko McRae, who um, works for Junebug Theater and is, is just a fantastic organizer um, and artist in her own right. Um, anyway, so these meetings turned into a weekly thing, sort of completely unexpectedly. Every Wednesday at noon for 10 or 11 months, people just came back and mm-hmm. back and back, sometimes very small, sometimes bigger. And this little baby organization started to kind of form and you know there's hours of wrangling over a name and we settled on you know MACNO Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans is pretty general in some ways because but we wanted to include at least another word besides music because yeah. you know again there's all kinds of issues around different cultural practices and you know we wanted to be sort of broad-based um, we'll say also with MACNO it is I always joke but it is exactly what happens when you create a name by committee is like <laughs> we had our, we had like two or three meetings and we had all these different ideas and slowly we're actually going to be NOMAC first we're going to be the New Orleans oh, Music yeah. Culture Coalition but NOMAC.com was taken so we had to go back and become MACNO do you instead. remember what NOMAC.com is I, or I was? don't unfortunately because no. I now I really wish I had an anecdote <laughs> <laughs> it's an anti-McDonald's website organization just NOMAC <laughs> maybe somebody was squatting on it we should just give Cool. So uh, it's it's funny. It's like, you know, 2012 was not that far ago. I mean, like five years ago. I've been living in New Orleans since 2002. And uh, I'm trying to, like, piece together exactly what was happening right then that would have spurred this. Because I think there was a two-prong, like, attack. Like, I know that, like, there was a, a point in time to try and, like, crack down on places that were playing music that didn't have licenses to play music. And then I believe the noise ordinance was kind of like the second thing that happened with that. Like the noise ordinance came in afterwards. It was kind of like, okay, well, we didn't get all those people to stop playing live music places, so now we're going to go with this noise ordinance. Is that that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Kind of. Yeah. Um, So so then... (laughs) (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Well, what was happening right then, you know, why there was this sort of... I guess like you know magnifying glass being held up to music permitting at the time was because September or the summer of 2012 was in advance of the Super Bowl being held in New Orleans and the city was not you know the the sort of nefariousness and and dedication that was being ascribed to the city as you know they're coming for us they're coming for our live music was not I mean it really was not the case 
they were, I believe, doing a sort of general check of alcohol permits, places that had alcohol. They were doing, they were sort of checking permits to try to make sure that everything in the city, you know, they were repairing roads, they were trying to make everything kosher and shiny and above board for the enormous international spotlight and attention of the Super Bowl coming Mm up that next February. As in the course of that, a bunch of places were found to you know, not have their music permitting in order. So in other words, as is often the case in a legal sense, live music is at best sort of neglected mm-hmm. legally. Yeah. Um, it is you know, an accessory used to alcohol. It is, you know, there's sort of no such thing really as a music venue mm-hmm. in the New Orleans legal system. I mean, the, the way that music and culture is treated in the laws is absolutely astonishing disappointing and usually pretty shocking you know when, mm-hmm. when we when we talk about it um it just it doesn't fit with the reality on the ground or the lip service that gets paid the reasons for that are sort of a side thing but <laughs> we can, how long is this podcast? i was gonna say <laughs> um i mean mostly just being that you know a lot of the cultural practices that grew up sort of outside of the edges of the legal system you know maybe not are maybe are not technically legal mm-hmm. um but nobody ever cared until they did and now you have this this conflict between the laws on the books and the reality on the ground right yeah um and i think to that we know i think what happened in that run-up also was people just hadn't been in compliance for their permitting because they never really needed to be before and all of a sudden it was like there was this sort of slap down that we're going to do it and everyone was like you know yeah you, you can't go from from zero to 100 right yeah. like you've mm-hmm. got to have some sort of process to get up there and what happened is they went from zero to a hundred and people were like now you're telling me i've got this show scheduled and i can't have them so we had yeah. who well, was the, it that lost like all their gigs at, in that time like oh, ever it was um what was it um juliet it was um yep and they they were they were playing at like circle bar and yeah. siberia and a couple other places and they, they were all literally there. all of their gigs went away um in in a moment right? yeah i remember mm. circle bar because that's that was, where i used to hang out yeah. at and that was the one that caught my that got me into this issue was because you know i went there for the music that was the right. whole point of going to the circle bar was for music and all of a sudden they were like this place has never been licensed for music that's, so, the, like, that's the one as far as i remember that katrina had disrupted their permitting and they just never gotten it back on board mm-hmm. um so, I mean, shortly after that first meeting, I think, the mayor's office issued a... There, there's a mayor's office of cultural cultural economy, um, and a representative from that office was at that first meeting, getting being the recipient of much of the yelling. He's, mm-hmm. um, he's very, very patient. Um, to be clear, he was not yelling back, right? No, 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 no. He was listening. He's a really good listener. He's been a, he's been a great ally. I feel like now. one of the things that the city officials do best is just absorb yelling. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you start work at City Hall, they give you, like, a yelling shield, like a, a yelling sponge. It's training where people yeah. yell at you for 45 for days. minutes. Right? If you crack, you're in like, yeah, no, no, no. move along. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Fight Club. I don't know. That's exactly what it's, it's like. your first day at City Hall. You will be yelled at. <laughs> and every day after that. Uh, well, so the mayor's office then basically issued a statement that said, you know, if you're in the process, as long as you're sort of showing a good faith effort as a venue that you're trying to get your permitting sorted, you can keep having live music. In other words, mm. not treating the live music and the musicians' gigs and musicians' livelihoods as sort of collateral damage mm. while this ridiculous legal and permitting process gets sorted out. So that was obviously, you know, a good step and a much better, like that kind of approach is much better. Is sort yeah. of like, let's nurture and protect the culture while we figure out how to catch the legal system up to it. Cool. So then the next thing you're talking about is the noise ordinance. Yeah, just jumping ahead. Now, <laughs> what, was, what, was the, what was the break in between that, between the licensing like debacle that was happening and then the noise ordinance? You mean, like so, time frame? Time frame, yeah. A, a little over a year. Yeah. About it was a September year. of 2012, and then in December of 2013, we get this heads up that a couple of well-connected special interest groups are people are trying to push through some updates to the noise ordinance. New Orleans has an ordinance. You know, some people sometimes think, oh, that's when they wrote it. It has this sort of Frankenstein of a noise ordinance with parts from the 50s and parts from the 80s. I mean, it really is this sort of, like, horrible patchwork, and parts of it are not constitutional, and parts of it... I mean, it's just... It's such a mess. Mm -hmm. But this set of updates that was being shoved... You know, attempted to be shoved through under cover of Christmas when everything's kind of quiet Mm -hmm. was so, so, so bad. Like, Mm -hmm. unbelievably bad. And it was actually, you know, looking back, it was bad enough that it actually sort of propelled us forward. I don't know if Macno would still exist if not for that in some ways. I think I think that's right. I think it's also going to be tough for us to top that moment also. Like, <laughs> so we came in big and it was like we did. Now now how do now what? If um, for for anyone I guess if you if you may remember um, we we had this sort of 
large rally outside of City Hall the night before, uh, and, and that was when this this piece of legislation was supposed to be discussed in a, in a committee in, in City Council, and um, we were going to pack City Hall, have people outside, sign, you know, tons and tons of people up to speak. Um, the night before, we got word that they had decided to pull it. They weren't going to pursue it because of this community backlash. We held the rally anyway, and then, not planned, a bunch of musicians marched into City Hall, waving their instruments, played second line down the hallway of City Hall, mm. and Latoya Cantrell, who is one of our council members, she... She was the only one. She was the only one. She ordered, I believe it was her, ordered City Council Chambers to be unlocked, the musicians, into City Council Chambers, playing, and the acoustics in there are quite good. I still maintain that they <laughs> should a have shows. Venue. It's like an amphitheater. Really should, it's not yeah. used at night. I mean, yeah. come on, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not optimizing our spaces yet. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and then she sat for three hours and listened to grievances. And we, we also, at that point, sort of made an attempt to kind of consolidate, like not just have everybody, you know, get up there and say the same thing for two minutes. You know, you hate culture. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spoke last that day and, you know... Sort After of on, three hours. On behalf of Magno. Uh, because yeah. I'd, I'd sort of been early on voted as sort of the person who, who could speak for Magno. Mm-hmm. Um, me and, and uh, the, the other woman, Kiyoko McRae. And basically just said, you know, thank you so much for listening to us. But it, it actually got international press, which was really yeah. fascinating to me. You know, these musicians. But again, with, with the sort of misinformation that tends to kind of trickle down, people mm-hmm. said, oh, they're trying to write a noise ordinance. You know, they're trying to... Like the understanding of the legal process of what was actually happening gets completely lost. Yeah. Um, sure, and, and I think it, it's cause there were some articles written about it um, that did some investigation of how this Noah's ordinance came to be because it actually it actually short circuited another process to update the Noah's ordinance that happened that was happening uh, sort of parallel. And what happened was there's an attorney who has been who had been suing music venues mm-hmm. in, in the French Quarter. Um, Stuart Smith was his name, um, and he's been suing venues for a long time. One of his um, his employees also works for a council member head, and they sort of through that process and these other people sort of colluded to create this ordinance that would essentially have codified what he was trying to do into city law, and well, so and that's he, why we felt it was, yeah. that's why we had to protest it because they had sort of had all the other council members sign on and, and sort of did this whole process without understanding how devastating it would be. And just I mean, sort of one point about that is it you know, and this sort of gets where our work becomes sort of behind the scenes but really important is it changed the point of measurement for sound complaints mm-hmm. so right now you you take the measurement from the from the point of the complainant so if you're down the block and you're complaining about a bar that's having music too loud they measure it from where you are to see mm-hmm. if it's violating the noise ordinance the the point where they changed was they changed it to the property line of the business or the place where the oh. complaint was so think of where we are now you like you're six feet or less from your property line if yeah. the front yeah. door. So but think of the change. across town could make a call yeah. and make a complaint. And, and they, they would, would have measure to, it here. Yeah. And right. it would have no relevance. And as, aside from Stuart Smith, I was going to add, you know, there's this other sort of very small group of very wealthy, very connected folks. I mean, there were these private meetings in people's right. houses. In, and these folks who... Stuart Smith was doing a lot of pro bono work for, for VC Pora, which is this organization that sort of acts as a neighborhood organization in the French Quarter, but is really just a, a right. sort of advocate group. Um, and and they were you know again sort of trying to shove this through. And if we hadn't gotten this heads up, um, which you know a year before when you know when Macno was sort of barely starting, there would have been no one to give a heads up to in some ways. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there's some other folks who you know who maybe have pushed back against it, but it really was this sort of this, this pivotal moment of okay, you know this is what this is what we can do. And and it was the process even more than the content. And that's what we hammered as hard as we could publicly, you know, to sort of make it clear that. You know, just because this person and this person are, are, you know, I mean, at one point there's literally this description of, oh yes, and then we drank wine at, you know, Councilmember Palmer's house and blah blah blah. Oh goodness! <laughs> and you know, and to kind of publicly out that as you know not an acceptable yeah. way to draft policy that would literally have ruined musicians' livelihoods. Right. I mean, yeah. It, it, and, and there were no musicians in this group, clearly, yeah. right? I mean, it, sure. was, it was... it was There was it some was real that. floral language, too, I believe. I think one of the campaigns, if I'm not mistaken, was like, hear the music, not the noise. Yeah, was yeah, that yeah, something that, 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 that was... Like, that was yeah. Hear the music, stop the noise was... That was Stuart was, Smith's blog. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was the com- <laughs> campaign that they started. And they actually took like videos of people that didn't know they were going to be on the site to mm. for their own purposes and things like this. So that that was exactly it was a PR it was a PR campaign mm-hmm. to push why their noise ordinance was needed. Yeah. Um which luckily didn't work. 
However, the flip side is we we worked to create a better update for the Noah's ordinance, which then didn't pass city council either. It so, yeah, so we're back at we've been at status quo huh. for a couple years now. Right. The, um, the noise ordinance then became such a hot button issue because of that sort of public explosion of it. Right. That city council members are sort of wary of it. But yeah, so some good updates. You know, again, like it needs updating for sure. And some and and you know that was January when when that that sort of rally and, and second line happened. Um, that April, it deadlocked in city council mm. three to three because someone, one council member, decided not to show up because she didn't want to be on the record. Goodness. <laughs> and you know, and, yeah. So, so your one job is to show up in the city, <laughs> <laughs> the city council. Like that's will all you, you have to will do. Will you tell her, please? Will you, will you let her know that? Oh, I try. <laughs> I show up at things. I yell at, yell at council people. <laughs> Every now and then. Yeah, um, what, what, did you, what have you shown up at Yellow Council people about? Parking. The parking. Oh, uh, nice. Big parking debacle was a thing. I showed up yep. to two oh, council yeah, meetings, yeah. which was crazy because they buried it after a huge budget meeting, which they thought would like disengage, I think, because they left it towards the end. But then like yeah, the things you see with like a budget meeting, you're like, all right, how much money are we allocating towards public libraries? Zero dollars. Is everybody okay with that? Everybody's okay with that? All right. Fuck <laughs> education. <laughs> <laughs> So it's 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 interesting. I think I bothered a lot of people by not taking as much of an aggressive stance on the parking thing because I do think that that's. I mean, I, I see how it hurt people that street parking went up and that it was being enforced for longer hours. That the the amount per hour went up in downtown areas and the people who depended on street parking were really hurt by that. I see that, but I also feel like for New Orleans as a city that is in desperate need of revenue generation, that if we're under charging for this service that we could that is a revenue generator then we're never gonna like if we could reroute some of that money to build build out a better public transportation system then maybe people would be less dependent on parking but we we, like, we need money all right, right i'm gonna get on my soapbox real quick <laughs> <laughs> it's just misrepresentation of information at this point though because they said that this was a measure to stop to fix traffic in the french quarter which is complete crap because no, it hasn't fixed any traffic in there and they were throw out like completely ridiculous statistics like um they were trying to use to Statistical data to say that nobody who lived in New Orleans was parking in the spots down in New Orleans. They said it was all people from out of town, is like what it was. And that was just a lie. I mean, we had like petitions signed by thousands of service industry workers who were saying, like, I drive to work every single day. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, public transportation would be great. Like a park and ride, like outside of the city, would be really nice for people who work in the French Quarter. But none of those measures are pursued. I mean, ever since like parking has gone up at this point. You know, there's been no positive resolution on that except, you know, the service industry workers who, you know, aren't making enough money are now paying that expense. That's fair. Tangential, and tangential issue. This is, I mean, this is a pipe dream, and I know that all the residents of the quarter and all the business owners in the quarter would never go for it. But I, I would like to see vehicular traffic banned from the French Quarter. I think it should, I would like to see bicycles and horse-drawn carts and maybe, maybe <laughs> delivery vehicles and emergency vehicles, but that's it. I would like it to be all pedestrians and, like, and I, I kind of look like more like Colonial Williamsburg, and I know that it's not a it's not a city under glass in that same way. Yeah. That it's a living, breathing community, and that would really affect a lot of people. Right. But I, I think I think that would be in a lot of ways. You know, like if you want to solve traffic in the French Quarter, ban traffic in the French Quarter. Mm. But again, I I, I, I know crazy. I am in a minority on that. <laughs> yes, I talk. Crazy. Work in the French Quarter for like ten years. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, cool. So. Uh, <laughs> With the noise issue, um, I think we've got, like, uh, uh, we're lucky enough to have a lot of listeners who live in New Orleans, so they understand a lot of these things. We've got a lot of listeners outside of New Orleans who right now are probably scratching their heads and being like, I thought New Orleans was about music and food, so I don't understand how this is an issue. This is, like, your lifeblood, right? Um, But uh, how accurate is the perception from a lot of the locals as well? Um, I think this this definitely was my perception for a long period of time, that a lot of these issues were being brought to the table or being, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say you know, like uh, <laughs> being promoted rather by people who didn't really live in the city. Like uh, that seemed like a big thing. Like people who just moved to the city recently were like uh, kind of like uh, so, you know it was like there was a whole thing about like you know oh well you moved next to a music venue and then you're going to complain about the music venue and you're not you haven't lived here for more than like six months or something like that. That was like, certainly my perception of it, especially at uh, what was it? Mimi's. Yeah, Mimi uh, used to have the one of my favorite dance parties in the city was DJ Soul Sister on Saturday nights at Mimi's and there was a period where I was going almost every week and it was mm-hmm. a great time and everyone had a blast and then it seemed like people moved in down the street from Mimi's and they were like oh wow this is loud let's shut it down yeah. and then and yeah that people who didn't 
that didn't appreciate the world that they were starting to occupy were the driving force of changing it to look more like the cities they moved here from. Is that accurate? So, um, um, let me, I'll take the first stab at that. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? I, um, so like Mimi's, for example, um, some of the people complaining have been a long time. The woman who moved next door had moved there very fairly recently. There's actually an article about her moving there, which was just prior. So I think it's a mix, right? And I think it's an easy narrative to fall into to say it's all newcomers from both sides, right? It's all newcomers that want to be loud. It's all newcomers coming in trying to change things. That we could we had an impasse there. Like everybody, everybody was new, right? So where where is all this coming from? Whatever your argument is, blame the carpetbaggers, <laughs> right? Um, and I think it's something that we try to get away from because it sort of is it became sort of a dead end argument because yeah everybody was new and there are people that live there a long time um, on both sides but. To that point, I think a narrative that we also pushed back a lot was for people that were upset about, you know, music at venues and that kind of stuff, they always tried to cast the narrative as musicians versus residents, mm. such as these musicians moving in and creating all this ruckus and, and you know, and that was it's absolutely false. Like, musicians live here, right? Like, the music, they are residents. used to be the residents in that neighborhood as well until they got priced well, out, right? I mean, it's not, just, it's not just false, it's also really harmful the word residence is super powerful you know you're it's it's sort of removing ownership of this place from musicians by saying it's musicians versus residents and and so i'm going to sort of add to that which is one thing that that i did a lot of and i think we've tried to do a lot of is sometimes trying to move the conversation past the point where it just devolves into who's been here longer because that is so often where it goes and that is so not useful. I mean, it really just kind of comes. Well, I moved here, and well, you know, I moved here in 1704. Like, okay, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, because what's more important is to sort of talk about why that's an issue, and you know, what the underlying thing. And this is something that I talk about so often because it's it's true with so many issues that we deal with. Is things that used to be socially regulated. If the if the sort of neighborhood fabric or the social fabric frays, and obviously Katrina ripped a huge hole in everything um, then what you're left with trying to sort of regulate any kind of cultural practice or, or you know human interactions is a legal framework and it doesn't really work you know you cannot legally regulate the music coming out of this neighborhood bar if the music coming out of this neighborhood bar used to be when you know old Joe would play there on Thursday nights and the music would stop when the little old lady who lived next door kind of you know hollered over at them and went to bed you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. things that were much more nuanced and much more you know specific and and sort of micro Um, anyway so Mimi's sort of unfolded right before and up sort of into the very early days of Magnus we were never involved in that one because we didn't sort of have to we didn't really exist strongly enough yet Um, and there was sort of this whole back history there Um, but you know the other piece of that is well I I guess two other things one I think it's a great example of you know, things change. Neighborhoods change and evolve. Cities change and evolve. Businesses change hands. Who gets to decide what is good organic growth and what is terrible whatever? Mm-hmm. That's the problem. You know, people feeling entitled to say, I live here now, I live next door, and I'm going to shape this in the vision that I have for it. And that's mm-hmm. a huge issue. One. Two, if the law is on the books, then align with that person's views, which was the case here in many cases, that's a problem. And then three, the issue of conflating live music with noise. So one of the worst elements of the the whole Mimi's sort of story that I ever read about was looking at the police log of complaints that had been made. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, the fact that a lot of the complaints had been made by the same one or two people. One one person can bring the sort of the whole power structure down on a music venue or a musician or a cultural practice and it, it's a really scary sort of imbalance in that way. Um, but looking at the time, the time stamps of the calls, they were after live music had stopped many times. Hmm. So in other words, the noise was the crowd on the street, the noise was the jukebox, but live music is so unbelievably vulnerable, mm-hmm. legally. And th- that's the, I mean, I always come back to that example of Mimi's, that the noise problem doesn't, didn't necessarily get solved, although sort of driving people away from Mimi's by, you know, no longer having some of the, the music that drew people there, mm-hmm. you know... Sure, now you've made it a less popular place and, and maybe it's not the same sort of quote-unquote nuisance that you know was an issue in the first place, but you have now cost how many musicians their weekly gigs? Mm-hmm. 
and you know nobody ever did that kind of economic analysis as far as I know maybe the bar did but you know sitting down to talk about the lost revenue for musicians um, you know and again this idea of music, live music musicians being collateral damage and then the jukebox is regulated legally very differently mm-hmm. and it's still there mm-hmm. and it can be even louder and again it, it, that was often the, the source of the sound complaint mm. um, but live music is just this sort of low hanging fruit that is really easy to and, and, and real quick on that what, what else let me happen with Mimi's is the residents sued because they got back their, their music permit or their live entertainment permit residents sued saying they were granted improperly um, and what happened is ultimately Mimi's settled the suit by saying they would no longer have live music but that way they got to keep their liquor license so they got to keep opening keep stay open as a bar and what you see that a lot is that you know live music and musicians become collateral damage because that way the bar can stay open and you can't be a bar without selling alcohol you can be a bar without hosting a live band yeah um and that, that that was sort of the point of the lawsuit is stop the music then you can stay open right it was deliberately to shut that down mm-hmm. um and you see that many times you see it with the, the case against Bufas, right you see it oh yeah over and over and over that was with uh sydney torres yeah. right yeah, yeah. yeah it's still happening still we'll see we'll see, what, we'll see what happens if uh if he decides to run. We're just bringing up all the potential mayoral <laughs> candidates in yeah. this podcast right now, right? Who else is going to be running? Names and names. You guys have been, because you've become sort of the de facto representatives of musicians in New Orleans, you've been asked to weigh in on a lot of other issues <laughs> that yeah. aren't directly pertaining to live music. Right. So I remember that I, I know that even when we, when we talked earlier this year about the security ban, it, we we talked also briefly about the the anti smoking right. in in bars and public places ordinance oh, that right, passed right, right. a couple of years ago. And for those of you who are unaware, uh, who may be twelve mile limit fans but haven't been coming here for a long time, this used to be a smoking bar. We had a we had a poker machine. I felt like it was sort of like it just seemed natural to have the New Orleans neighborhood bar it was by default a smoking bar. Mm-hmm. And then over time, we did a we did a non smoking on Saturday nights, and then we did a couple nights a week. And then eventually, we made the decision as you know, it was my bar, it's my property. I felt that it was right to be a smoke free bar, and that we, we we do cocktails, we do. Uh, higher end food than most dive bars do, and it sort of made sense for us to be that space. We also don't have a smoke eater; it's a low ceiling. It, there's a lot of reasons why it seemed like the kind of place that shouldn't have smoking inside. But I also waited to do that until I had a patio space because I didn't want to kick everyone out onto the street right. when they wanted to go have a cigarette. I have nothing against smoking; I don't, I don't do it myself very much anymore. Um, but I think it's a decision that adults should be allowed to make for themselves, and I think it's a decision that property owners should be allowed to make for themselves. And when the smoking ordinance passed, it kind of bothered me because we had made the decision, and at the time, we were one of the only bars in Mid-City that was smoke-free. So we had a real point of differentiation in the neighborhood right. that we lost, and I think that kind of hurt our business, that people were like, oh, now we can go to any bar in Mid-City and have right a smoke street. Yeah, go to Spins right down the, right down the street. So I think a lot of people expected you guys to come out in favor of the smoking ban because mm-hmm. for public health reasons. Mm-hmm. And honestly, from a public health standpoint, if that's the only lens that you're looking at it through, then the smoking ban is a no-brainer. Right. Um, but you guys did not. I don't know. If, I can't remember if you guys took a stance on it or not or just stayed out of the fray. Uh, but how, how did that shake out for you two? Or for your organization? It was, it was, it was an interesting obviously. moment for us, I would say. It, we were neutral. Well, we were neutral officially. Right. We had an enormous range of opinions amongst among people who are part of Magno and it's sort of one of these moments of realizing how big of an umbrella we we built you know you've got business you know bar owners business owners you've got musicians you've got musicians who think differently from other musicians you have people who don't like the policy implications again in terms of sort of restricting what people can can legally freely do um, and so we officially sort of could not take a position. I don't remember if we sort of put out a statement. No, and I think that I think our mistake was not explaining mistake, why yeah. why why we were neutral, why we were neutral in this situation. We which was we should right. have put out a, a statement, and because we didn't, 
I got yelled at. We got we got cursed out. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, because musicians were being used as part of the narrative for the smoking band oh, yeah. as well. Too. Yeah. It was like, oh, the poor poor bartenders and the poor musicians with all the secondhand <sighs> smoke. But it's funny to me because like I feel like a lot of musicians smoke, and I, almost every bartender smokes as well too. So it's like, well, who are you protecting? It, it, it gets, it's very paternalistic, and it gets used. I mean, coming you know, it gets used for for sound levels as well. Like, oh, those mm-hmm. poor musicians, they want to protect their hearing, and it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. My, my take there is always you do not get to sort of play the the paternalistic protector when you know every move you make is is harmful to new orleans culture so so right sit down with that but in in terms of the smoking ban you know again how i felt about it sort of personally and from a policy standpoint we're a little bit at odds and i think that was kind of representative of of us as an organization but we should have put out a statement sort of Mm -hmm. explaining that um and that was sort of our in our growing pains period as an organization and, and yeah. navigating that. But I think what we tried to do was encourage everybody to to speak about it whichever side they were on that so that um, they would encouraging their voices to be in the debate mm-hmm. rather than saying, listen to us because we know what's best. And also, like, we're not public health experts either, right? Yeah. Like, um, And there are musicians that were very much for the ban and, and some that were against it and, and bar owners on both sides. And so... If we would have taken a hardline stance for or against it, would have I think split us as an organization in a way that would have made it difficult to get other issues that everyone is together on to move them forward. Yeah. And, and you're right; I'd forgotten that we did use it as as a moment to sort of remind people and encourage people and try to empower people to speak up in in city council. I mean, one of the things we're working on now is a guide to speaking in city council because it's something that mm. is a really important part of the legal process. But for a lot of people, it's super daunting, and yeah. it's you know it's kind of this inaccessible, like murky thing. Yeah, and you see yeah. people show up with like their you know five page long letter they want to read, but they only have one minute, and so they get through the intro thing, everybody, and they're like, "All right, and your time is up." And so, <laughs> like, right. and so or they just get up there and, and rant for two minutes, which is not a good use of anybody's time. No, right. Ever. Don't ask the council members to. Uh, a bunch of questions to respond to you because they'll just say thank you for your time right, right? Mm. it's your floor you, know I mean? it's <laughs> right. like, you don't cede the floor back to anybody because right, you're not right. going to get it back anyways guide to speaking in city council coming soon from Magno <laughs> I mean I, I've literally drafted this and, and we're working on it um, yeah. I have completely lost the thread of what we're talking no about no worries that's happens, how the show works happens, as well. happens, happens, well, that's how my life works smoking ban right or sort of but, but <laughs> and we're talking about the smoking ban in the context of this security plan, and, and I'm well. I'm glad that this is this is audio and, and not visual right now. But because it's audio, you can't see the quotes. It's it's a security quote unquote mm-hmm. plan that the city recently put out. Which again, as you you know you were saying, is sort of how you came to be to be aware of us. Um, it's another good example of us sort of weighing in as a voice advocating for sort of musicians and, and culture, cultural folks and the cultural economy as a whole um, because, you know, for, for anybody who's not familiar, the, the mayor's quote-unquote security plan is this set of measures ostensibly to lower crime in the French Quarter. Um, they say it's citywide. Well, they citywide. Put, they put cameras all over yes, the city. citywide. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, none, none of the measures being proposed would actually fix the problems that are being used to shove this forward and it's a really good example of fear-mongering mm-hmm. being used you know crime 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 scary 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 we're going to do all these things and the trying to then gloss over the problems in those things and you know we as an organization are really not okay with that kind of fear-mongering language because that happens all the time you know right. if if we don't do something there's going to you know we're going to be overrun with Street performers, or you know, something. Right. <laughs> right it's right. also yeah, the uh, street report performers are the ones that are responsible for the wave. <laughs> the burden falling down on the businesses as well with this proposed plan. Correct. It's like the city's not paying for those closed circuit TVs. I mean, it's right. basically saying like you have to have this under this ordinance, and you have to pay for this, and we're going to start like limiting your hours as well. To it's right. like how much money do you want to take from these right. businesses? Right. Well, so and I, raising the tax rate the entire time. I, I mean, kind of Jesus. Walking it back for folks who are not familiar with the specifics, there was a couple of the worst. People pieces of it have already been walked back and the very initial plan was the the sort of floating proposal that bars would have to close at 3 a.m. and that of course was immediate close their doors right so so the, what, what I found out is originally before they released it it was gonna they were gonna the propose to all bars was, to close at 3 a.m. they walked whoa, that back before yeah. they released it to, yeah. to doors closed at 3 a.m. but again which, starting from a really extreme point it's okay, no. to then just sort of walk it back you know somewhere you know, that that's not good enough so it, yeah, it came out as Bars have to close their doors at 3 a.m., still open for business. Patrons are then encouraged to stay inside. Which, except they, which they walk back 
quickly too because there's this whole thing about encouragement the right. NOPD would then encourage people to be police, inside and what is, what does that mean encouragement sweeps yeah. on the street encouragement yeah. sweeps well, and, that, and that's where we came <laughs> out very swinging I mean we came out absolutely swinging on that one with a statement sort of slamming them for basically setting up you know scenarios in which all sorts of bias that is known to what does encouragement look like to you know a 50 year old white woman tourist on Bourbon Street versus a 20 year old black man in Central City? What does encouragement mu- to go inside? You know, and, and he might look be a musician like. leaving his gig yeah. at 2 a.m. You know, I mean, calling a spade a spade on that one really. Yeah. Yeah. Just, no, the, um, the, the, the opportunity for selective enforcement there because of the nebulous way that it was worded, right. was which, which they didn't really walk, dangerous. They walked back at a meeting and said we never said that at all. But I'm, if you can go yes, back, you you did. Did. check the tape <laughs> on it that one. Yeah, you did. You totally did. So yeah, so that that's since been walked back again but so now now the next sort of piece of it and I mean again one of the things about this plan is that it's so many different pieces and you know some of them are sort of just like well I don't know if that's the best use of money like six million dollars to repave Bourbon Street you know it's not that's not under the guise making, of security right. like <laughs> you know that and again but if you put the name security on things and you sort of get that fear-mongering language you can often sort of get approval for using money for various things. So, you know, sort of under that guise, they're like, well, okay, we'll do this and this and this and this. So some of these pieces are just proceeding ahead, but some of them are going to require some legal change. And that's, of course, you know, where if there's going to be a fight, it's going to be there. And I think the cameras is going to be... Um, yeah. Yeah, of all the ones that seem like they still might happen, the cameras... And th- th- this was a part of the proposal that would require every bar in the city to have out- outside facing. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of misunderstanding about it. A lot of people were like, I don't want cameras inside the bar. And we were like, well, that's not what they're proposing, right. technically. They're proposing outside facing cameras. They wouldn't be CCTVs, because that's closed circuit televisions. That yeah. is su- su- just recording. And we have outside facing cameras on a CCTV system. And we share that information with the police. But what they were proposing was that they be monitored 24-7 remotely. That they, It's not a closed circuit at all. Hmm. It's an open circuit. That mm. every camera a outside thing. a bar would feed into a central monitoring hub, and every bar right. could be—you could basically look over the shoulder of every bar. Like in the, in the UK, I mean, that's how their CCTV works. I mean, right. Right. and and I, if they want to put some more cameras near crime hotspots on public space and pay for them themselves and pay for the maintenance, I can see the value of that. But I also, it's just, it's creepy. That was the biggest problem for me with it. That's one of the reasons I came out against it. I mean, the 3 a.m. door closing, we're almost always closed by, by then at 12 Mile. I mean, we mostly keep our door closed anyway because I don't want to be refrigerating the outdoors. I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's just sort of dumb that so many places keep their doors open constantly in the summer. But again, like the smoking ban, I think that should be my choice. Mm-hmm. I think it, it speaks to what, Hannah, what you were talking about very early on in this episode. We were talking about the sort of the nebulous nature of interior and exterior spaces, just shutting that off. Just it, it's antithetical to the way that this city is is organically grown, and it it just felt wrong. Yeah. But yeah. the CCTV thing. Sorry again, I'm I'm misleading again myself because it's just sort of the common nomenclature for those kind of right. systems. We've had it just in or around the bar a few incidents that have required a police response, and every time the police have come, we have voluntarily given them a recording of what our cameras have caught and, and they've used that in their, to, in their reports and we're, we're happy to do that but I don't want it to be able to, to happen without them coming and asking for it. Right. That's right. Like, I, mean, I, want, like, I want to know when they're so, watching. There's so basically. many problems with it. You know, one is right. uh, you know, demanding that the bars pay for it themselves. Two is that lack of, uh, of sort of the process of sharing information. You, know, you should have control over that information if it's your bar. Three is the fact that there is and I'm certainly not a, a, a sort of a crime data expert um, but I, I believe there is research that shows that cameras like that are not a deterrent to mm-hmm. crime right, they not. may be useful after the fact but not you know again in terms of the sort of the justification of, of the problems that they're quote unquote trying to fix and, mm-hmm. and what's actually going to be going to be happening so, so yeah a couple things too on that you know one thing we, we kept asking is what is the you know how is this information going to be used? Can you assure us that this will not be passed up the chain? We, we live in a Trump Sessions Justice Department world right now, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. the FBI is a, and Homeland Security are both involved in the security plan. And we have a new mayor coming in in, what, 10 months? And, and likely a new police chief, you don't know. <laughs> and we don't know who that's going to be. Right. And 
we can get no assurance that, in fact, say we do somehow as a fluke reelect sort of a right wing mayor. How do we know that we're not going to actually see some of this information then being passed up the chain? Mm-hmm. And when, when we ask that question, they say that like, don't worry, it's not going to happen. It's like mm-hmm. no one doesn't work. Wait a minute, don't worry is not enough. Right. Um, yeah, and <laughs> I, I worry. Right, exactly. An, an out, for for an outgoing work. mayor to, to set up a system that, that could be used in some right. really horrific ways. And I mean, you know. we're looking at you know um, you could easily target undocumented workers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know who who makes a lot of sort of places run, right? Maybe undocumented workers that are coming in and out. Um, we ice raids are already happening, right? Like we, that's a thing you could. I mean, easily use it. To, you know, crime, quote unquote, crime cameras in in different areas. You know, how is that going to be used? Is it going to be specifically to target communities? Are going to be targeting young black men, Muslims, and and undocumented workers? Brown, like brown folks. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. again, in a in a Trump sessions with a right wing New Orleans mayor, who knows? And that's not to me. That's not an acceptable risk to take. Mm-hmm. Um, to create one, a, a security state, essentially. Essentially, that, 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 and yeah. And, and where is that? Where is that going? That's that's one big thing. The other thing I was looking at too is, you know. The fact that it'll be on not just bars and music venues, but any place that sells alcohol would be a part of the system. So oh, yeah, grocery anybody. stores, mm-hmm. gas stations, anywhere would be a part of this system. And one thing I wanted to look at was I think someone, maybe Jeff Adelson, the advocate, put out some data of how many crimes were happening at certain times around ABOs, mm-hmm. and it wasn't yeah. it the right time. 3 a.m. was among the lowest times yeah. for crime, right. especially around bars. Right. right. And, and arbitrarily, like, you could take that same thing and within, say, 150 feet of all fast food restaurants, how much crime is happening if they're all on major streets, right? Like, you could, you could also create data points that could maybe prove that, in fact, all this crime is happening around other than churches or School. fast food restaurants <laughs> or, or whatever, whatever kind of point you want to do, and however right. however broad you want to draw that circle, you could you could make similar points to to yeah. yeah. When, you, when you live in a city where there's a bar every three blocks, right? Then exactly. It's like, of course, there's crime near bars. <laughs> exactly. uh, and and that that was a, a major point as well. But I think also for us, part of the plan is. There's no investment in community, right? There's no investment in youth jobs. There's no investment in yeah. any of that that would actually prevent... Not addressing the, system, the systematic right. issues. Yeah, the, system, the systematic Systemic. issues of lack of economic opportunities, lack of educational opportunities, is like that there, are, there aren't better jobs. Crime is often viewed by people on the right. I'll just put it that way. But crime is often viewed by people on the right as something that some other class of people do. Mm-hmm. Where, in fact, crime is most often a rational reaction to an extreme economic circumstance. Mm-hmm. But these are people. These are human beings that are living in a world where crime is literally the best option available to them. And that's... We need to create a system where that's just not the case. That's the way to solve crime. It's not to just crack down harder on the people who are committing crime. I mean, we need to punish criminals. I'm not saying we just not have law. <laughs> but we need to address the, the, the systematic economic conditions that make crime the choice that people make. Yeah, and I want to do a quick you know, shout out to the People's Assembly who we work mm. with to do this rally for youth jobs. Um, to saying like, what if we took that $40 million instead of investing in repaving bourbon and, and surveillance cameras, we invested that in creating thousands of jobs for youth throughout the summer. And, you know, how could that actually create some systemic solutions to, to these issues and create Opportunity rather than just more opportunities for surveillance. Well, there was a, I think it was a video or maybe maybe just sort of talking about it, but it was somebody gave sort of, I think it was a classroom of like fifth graders, sort of this exercise of like, okay, the city thinks that this is what we should do with $40 million. What do you think we should do? Hmm. These kids, I mean, and what these what these kids came up with was completely right on. You know, it was, mm-hmm. like it was, it was kind of ridiculous. And, and that's, I think, one of the biggest issues that I have with this security plan is that even the parts of it that aren't the most ridiculously egregious, you know, setting up racial profiling with police sweeps on the street at 3 a.m. or, you know, telling bars that they need to close their doors, the parts of it that are sort of more okay, quote-unquote, are just such a ridiculous misuse of money and the idea that this money could be found. You know, $40 million is a lot of money. And the idea that this could kind of be pulled from somewhere and used for these things that are, you know, yeah, repaving Bourbon Street. Like, yes, streets should get repaved once every hundred Sometime. years. Sometimes. hundred <laughs> years or so. Like, <laughs> fine. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, it sort of reminds me a little bit, kind of looping way back to that, you know, original sort of autumn when Macno formed and there was sort of all this activity before the Super Bowl and, you know, certain streets were getting repaved, you know, in the quarter. And Basin Street at the time, you know, which is sort of this major thoroughfare um, through a historic black neighborhood, was in the most 
terrible shape. And it was just this idea of sort of what gets prioritized and what and you know money gets put to the things that are prioritized. And it, it, the message that it sends to prioritize this kind of stuff is. I need a I need a better word than disappointing. Um, I mean, and, and to be clear, this disheartening. This, this forty million dollars for this plan was this is an addition to the the rest of the thing. So I think I think twenty three million or something comes from the convention center directly, and it 26. is it, it's being injected into the thing. So it's not like this is a reallocation of different things. This is actually just one time funds. And and the thing is, if you took the the total forty million for this plan, I think it would double the amount that's being spent on on like children, youth, and families in the <laughs> in the city for the year. I mean, zero dollars for public libraries. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's it's a statement of priority and where are, where is a priority? And when we have this one time injection of funds and none of it's being used in in community in for youth, it's all. I mean, we can find six million to repave Bourbon Street. We can find ten million to fund some youth programs, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a matter of priorities, and what are you saying is important? Yeah, and and I mean that that's sort of what comes back to one of the fundamental things of Macmillan's work, which is just this idea of how music and culture is treated under the law. And it's something that I always talk about is I wish that the legal language reflected the love that people say that they they bear for the city and for the culture of it, because oftentimes it's in direct opposition. You know, it's oh, I love music and culture, also. Music is treated, you know, live music is treated at best as a nuisance and at worst as sort of... Sideshow. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of lumped in with, you know, sin, vice, crime, nightlife, right. hooligans, yeah. people who don't pay taxes. Like, and jazz. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Literally. And it, it's so <clears throat> horrifying, you know, the way music and culture is thought of in sort of a legal and policy sense and in these sort of, the, in, in the spaces where the power is wielded. And so, yeah, I mean, there's probably a whole other podcast on, on that. But I think one thing I would say is the same arguments you saw being made about jazz, you know, 100 years ago, you're seeing basically the same people make about bounce today, right? Like, mm. it's the same arguments, the same cycle, you know, slightly updated code words, but but still exactly the same. And I think the way I'd, I'd like to sum it up is in New Orleans, for for the vast majority of New Orleans history, Culture's always been legislated as a problem that needs to be managed rather than an asset that, as a, that needs to be nurtured for the city. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have so many laws. And, and you can't discount the role of race being played in the way that culture has been litigated oh, yeah. and, and managed in New Orleans and, and continues to be. But um, but I think that's always been the way that people have looked at it. It's like, okay, this, this venue's too loud as a problem. Let's pass a law to make sure they stop music by midnight. Not, hey, look at this. Look at the opportunity this is creating for people and look at the money that's bringing in the city. It's, it's always okay, that's an issue. How do we control that? Mm-hmm. And so that's the way that from, from the way, they, you know, they legislate against, um, you know, the way they crack that on Mardi Gras Indians to the way that they legislate against music venues to... To arresting to trombone shorty as a kid for playing on the street in Congress mm-hmm. Square. Right. I mean, I'm I mean, sorry, in Jackson Square. Yeah. I mean, and, and all those things are, you know, is it, and we see some, and I want to, I want to give a little credit. There has been a lot of progress on some of the issues mm-hmm. over the past, you know, five or ten years. I think that deserves to be said. But now the big question mark is with the new council, with the new mayor, a lot of that stuff was never actually codified into law. It just is change in practices. And so a lot of that could flip back depending on who's elected. And so that's also sort of, I guess, our cause. that You get involved now where we have a chance to actually, you know, find candidates that, that – push positive policy that push opportunity um i'm just gonna i guess sort of expand yeah. that just a little we're, bit. we're, we're wrapping up we're wrapping so up. Yeah, let's yeah, make this yeah, a parting yeah. shot here yes indeed. <laughs> um just sort of flipping the narrative a little bit to you know again music and culture are things to be nurtured and musicians are residents and musicians who are residents are part of the processes you know and that gets back to the speaking in city council and just kind of breaking down the the barriers that have often existed between the the legal and policy world and the music and culture world um and that's that's what we're working on all righty those are great parting shots and everything uh just real quick before we go ahead and cut off i mean we could be talking forever i think this is (laughs) incredibly engaging (laughs) i'm very excited about this podcast i think this is um really great information he says that every week you guys are so special <laughs> alright so for all of our listeners one more time if y'all could just introduce yourselves and um, if anybody hopefully they're inspired by this podcast wants to find out more information about your cause where can they find that yeah how can they get involved again? do you have any events coming up things like that yeah any, any current campaigns um well real quick um my name is Ethan Ellis I'm the executive director of the music and culture coalition of New Orleans 
known as MACNO. I am Hannah Krieger Benson. I uh, do programming and advocacy with MACNO. <laughs> um, MACNO.com is a good place to start. Yeah, we're um, on we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe uh, at least uh, Twitter and Instagram were Music Culture Five Hundred Four, um, and Facebook. Just look up Music Culture Coast from New Orleans. We'll, you'll get to us. You'll find us. Is the open letter against the uh, security plan still active? It is. So you can sign on um, on magna.com. You, um, if you find opposition to New Orleans' $40 million security plan, that will take you right there. Um, <laughs> and and you, and you can sign on to your, the letter in opposition. So we've been, we've been pulling up uh, businesses, bands, individuals, organizations. We're submitting it to all city council members very soon. So join on, add your name. And it also just has you know sort of an outline of... of what it is that we're opposed to. It's got it's got you know, some of the talking points sort of broken down. If you're still feeling sort of confused about you know the different parts of this plan, so yeah. and, and I don't know when the podcast goes out, but we have in the longer term our fifth anniversary celebration will be in early November. So look out for an announcement for that. We so should have this out before then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> um, we also have something on this Thursday. Uh, no. we're, ta- we're talking about street performance at the uh, Alvar Branch Library yep. at six. Yep, at the um, library. And I think that's all we have immediately scheduled. We're also going to do a, uh, likely another street performance in the law teaching uh, when, yeah. in the early fall when performers come back into town. And then at some point in the fall, we will also be um, hopefully hosting a forum with mayoral candidates. As yeah. Well. Oh, yeah, fun. Yeah, so look forward to that. That's we'll, an open forum? Yeah, it should be. We'll Stay tuned on social yeah. media. For this <laughs> All right, guys. I think that's a great place to wrap up. This has been another uh, ish, uh, issue, pardon me, episode of Around with Stephen Cole. I am your uh, co-host, Stevie Mata. I am your other co-host, T. Cole Newton. We do have issues, but thank you for listening. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>